So, good morning. How many of you remember when What Would Jesus Do became a thing, right? Remember that was like a big thing? Um, if you were thinking, oh, that does sound familiar, I think it was like in the mid-90s uh, when that started to become really popular or when that kind of became a thing, uh, you would be half right because it actually started in the 1890s. So the background behind what would Jesus do, like the bracelets, if you remember those, um, this all came from 18, in 1896, there was a pastor by the name in Topeka, Kansas, of Charles Sheldon, and he wrote a book called In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? Uh, since he originally wrote it, it has actually sold over 50 million copies. Uh, and basically, the book is about a fictional, it's a fictional story of a people who were living in a small town, and they would face the various situations and the frustrations of life, and they would ask themselves, what would Jesus do? And so somehow, about 100 years later or so, uh, the bracelet started to be on everybody. Raise a hands. How many of you wore a bracelet at one point? Okay. These are the people that grew up in church. There you go. That's us. Um, <laughs> Now, you might have been cool. You might, you, might have, you might have thought it was cool to wear a bracelet, but I don't know how many of you wore two. Okay, we got one. I think we got a picture of me. Now, I don't know if you can see this. There we go. On my right hand, there's a little black bracelet on my wrist. And then, because I was really cool, there's a little red one right around my elbow. Hey, Dylan, what's happening there? Uh, one of my friends bought me a red one. It was like a clip-on one. It was too big for my wrist. And so instead of just like maybe not wearing it, I wore it on there for a while. And so, you know, the devil, when you got two bracelets on, I mean, he is scared of you. And so that was me. Uh, and, and what would you do? Now, this series, we are talking about uh, what would Jesus undo? When Jesus came in the first century at Rome, and we read the stories of him confronting people and the religious leaders, one of the things he was doing was correcting false ideas about God and who he is and what he came to do. So the question we might ask ourselves is that if Jesus was around today in the flesh, what are some things that he would challenge uh, believers in? What are some things that if you're a follower of Jesus and you're not careful, you might find yourself falling into that Jesus, out of love and compassion, would say, no, you're focusing on the wrong thing. You need to focus on what actually matters. Uh, and so today we're kicking off our series talking about political idolatry. Uh, interestingly enough, this was the series we were going to start the week COVID hit last March. Uh, so that's kind of cool. Uh, this sermon was going to be preached as we were heading into the political season. Uh, now it's being preached as we kind of reflect on what happened. Uh, but today we're talking about political idolatry. I was talking to my community group on Tuesday night, and I said, you know, Sunday afternoon today, Christina and I are flying, headed, getting on an airplane and going to Orlando for our 10-year anniversary. Yes. No kids. Yes. And so I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come in, I'm going to talk about politics, and I'm going to get on an airplane. And we'll see. We'll see if there's a church when I come back. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so political idolatry. Now, to put us all on the same page, here's the most basic way you could explain what an idol is. An idol is a representation of a deity. It's things that you and I, maybe we're not creating physical idols today, but are things that you and I give significance to or more importance to than God himself. And some of these things can be very good things that we kind of create as God things, right? We put them in a place higher than we should, that our value and our identity and worth is placed in these things. And so what we're looking at today is the political idolatry. And let me be clear that all of us face 
all of us face, right? What happens is we idolize things that we hope will provide for us, that will do things for us that God can only do. Now, uh, I want to be clear as we talk about this over the next few minutes, I am not talking about a retreat from politics. Uh, I'm not even calling for this sort of like passive pacifism or this kind of apolitical, we don't care, we don't think about it, we don't talk about it. What I'm saying is that we focus in on it in a healthy and a God-honoring way. And so I want to be clear again, my goal is never to be provocative or to offend just for the sake of doing that, but I want scripture to challenge us in the places that we need to be challenged. And I think what we can do when we hear messages or sermons like this is we can think of all the people that should be hearing this, my friend, my coworker, my classmate, uh, my, you know, my family member, anything like that. What I want to challenge us to do today is think about what do I need to hear? Where is the word challenging me to be more like Jesus, to love people more like Jesus, if you are a follower of Christ? And that's what we're looking at today, because all of us can, be, can idolize politics, whether you're outspoken, keyboard warrior, talking about online, or maybe you're more reserved and you don't really say anything, but you judge people, right? Your heart towards people is not in a loving posture. All of us, followers of Jesus, can place our politics greater than it should be. And so this is something I think all of us might be convicted of at some point in the sermon. Uh, so that's what we'll see uh, today. So if you have a Bible, we'll be in 1 John chapter 4. Or you can go ahead and flip there. If you do not have a Bible, there's a black one around you. And you can take that one home if you do not own one. So if you've got a smartphone or if you want to flip there, you want to read along with us, it'll be page 1084 in that black uh, Bible. 1 John was written towards the end of John's life. He was one of Jesus' disciples, the only one who was not actually killed for claiming he saw Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, tradition has it he was uh, boiled alive but survived and then sit in, sent to live in exile for the remainder of his life. First John is an amazing book towards the end of your Bible. It's a short little letter talking about God's love for us and what that compels us to do in response. And so here's what he says, First John chapter 4, verse 7 through 11. It says this, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and, whoever, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And God's love was revealed among us in this way, that God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live. Right? I love that, not have obligation, not be bored, not be restricted, but that we might live through him. And love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then verse 11, dear friends, if God has loved us in this way, we must also love one another. John is talking about the gospel here, that Jesus in our shame and in our brokenness came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, not because we earned it, but because he loves us, that we are all broken, that we are all sinful, that we all have shame and guilt and idols in our life, and God in his love sent Jesus to rescue us, to, through his death, burial, and resurrection, made it possible for us to walk into life and the life that God offers us. And so the gospel is this picture that Jesus is our king, he is our savior, but he is also our example, right? Because God loved us in the midst of our uh, ideological differences, in the midst of our sin and our shame and our brokenness, what this means for us is that you and I, if you are a follower of Jesus, ought to love one another the way Christ has loved us because we didn't deserve it. And oftentimes people in our life may not deserve it. He is our example. And so when we talk about this idea about political idolatry and loving the way God has loved us, here's what we need to know that people are more important than politics. People are more important than politics. And not only that, they are more important than their political beliefs. People are more important than politics and their political beliefs. Now, at this point, 
all of us would say, yes, that sounds nice. I agree. God is love. And so on the theoretical level, yes, we just love people even if they disagree. What's interesting is that Jesus being our example, this is not just like a, oh, if we're supposed to love people, then we should love people who disagree politically. Jesus himself actually modeled this. You may not know this, but he actually modeled this. Let me just read to you. It'll be on the screen. Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. We have the, uh, one, of the only, one of the few times in the New Testament we have a list of all the disciples mentioned at once. And here's what it says in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Summoning his 12 disciples, this is Jesus, he gave them, over, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. John, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, Alphaeus and, Th- and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now, you might be thinking, what's significant about that? One of the things that's very significant about this list of disciples is that some of the disciples have kind of descriptions attached to them. And and they all are like familial descriptions of how they might know each other. But two of them have descriptions attached to them that have nothing to do with family or relationships. And that is Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. Now, why is that significant? Matthew was a tax collector. Again, if you're familiar with church and you maybe grew up around it, you know that tax collectors are like bad people. And you might not know why they're bad people. They're bad people because, at least in the eyes of the Jews at the time, uh, they were your brother or your sister or your family member or your best friend. Imagine one of your best friends that you grew up with. You're in the Roman Empire. They are occupying your area. They are brutal. Um, they are, it's good if you're a citizen, but most people weren't citizens. Most Jews were not citizens. And so at the, at the drop of the hat, if you do anything wrong, they could beat you. They could jail you. It is very likely that you grew up knowing someone who was killed or mistreated or beaten unfairly by the Roman Empire because they can. And they, didn't look, they looked down at the Jews just like they looked down at most anybody in the empire that wasn't a Roman citizen. So you were oppressed and you were afraid and you were intimidated anytime you're around a Roman official. Right? And so as you grow up, one of your friends, uh, for, for whatever reason, somehow, someway gets connected with the Romans and becomes a tax collector, which means they are now taxing you. They are making money off of you to fund the oppression that you are dealing with. Right? This is why in the New Testament it talks about tax collectors and prostitutes as like the, what people kind of assumed were the worst of the worst. I mean, there are, I wish there was an example, but there is no like modern day American example that I can give that would allow us to really fully understand and appreciate the mindset that people had towards tax collectors. If you and I were Jews living in the first century, as much as we might not, we might bristle at this thought, we would hate tax collectors. We would hate them. We would absolutely hate them. We would want nothing to do with them. If you were a tax collector, you were often um, uh, left out of your family. You were kind of excommuted from your community. In fact, you had to be protected most of the time if you were out in public because people would beat you. They would hit you. It just was a brutal life, and you were completely excommunicated from your community. You were considered the worst of the worst. But then you have a zealot. And a zealot is someone not just, it could be a couple of things. It could be someone with a lot of religious zeal. But what's most likely with Simon is one of two things. There was actually like a political zealot army, or sorry, a political uh, kind of a party of zealots in the first century Roman Jewish area of Jews who were like anarchists who literally wanted to, with violent efforts, overthrow Rome. And so we kind of have, you know, modern examples of this, of like really extremist groups. Now, this is what the zealots were. They were an extremist group with no, no matter, no, with whatever means necessary. 
They wanted to uh, get away from Rome, and they would fight and kill. So he could have literally been a part of that political group, or he could have just been someone maybe not part of that group, but just hated the Roman Empire and was totally fine, right? And in fact, if you were in a back alley with a tax collector, a zealot would have no problem killing them. No problem. I mean, this is the extreme of the extreme. Uh, and so there's really no really modern example. This is not like a, a Democrat-Republican difference. I mean, this is an extreme difference. Um, they would have hated each other. Uh, if you were to kind of give a modern-day example, uh, even though it's really hard to do that, but you think of it in like our modern terms, uh, these were people that would not be Facebook friends, but block, unfollow, that would have happened day one. Um, they would have used things like uh, talking about people in the other, like you would have no relationships with each other in the other camp, so we, they would use phrases like those people, which is what we say when we don't know somebody uh, who's in a, uh, maybe an ethnicity or a group or there's some sort of identity that we don't have any, we don't know anyone in that camp, we would say things like those people. I mean, they would have hated each other. They would have absolutely hated each other. What does Jesus do? He brings them together. Right? They found something greater in this man named Jesus that united them over their political beliefs. And here's the thing. They would not have just dropped their political beliefs, especially a zealot. Like the, a tax collector might have felt shame. It might have felt you know, kind of ex excluded for a while. But a, a zealot certainly would not have dropped their beliefs. And yet, even in the midst of those disagreements, they found something greater because their political identities was not their identity anymore. This Jesus was and the love that he offers. And if you can, you can kind of think of it this way, like think of times in your life uh, where people uh, found something greater that united enemies. So like, you know, a well-known example is 9-11, if you remember, or around for 9-11. Uh, after 9-11, unless if you were being honest, you were of Middle Eastern or Arabic descent, uh, it was a very unifying time in America. Black, white, Asian, Republican, Democrat, like this a horrible thing happened. And so there was a while, for a while there, where we loved each other, where we were kind to each other, where we agreed with each other. In fact, you see this in the President George Bush's approval rating at the time. Uh, before 9-11, it was around 51%. In the months preceding 9-11, it was 92%, the highest any president has ever had, ever, right? Because this horrific thing happened, and we were unified together. The only difference is in between situations like that and what's happening with Simon and Matthew is that this was not just a one-time event. This was the rest of their life. They found something that was greater, that it caused them to have love and compassion for others because of who Jesus is and what he has done. And so here's why it's important for us to know that people are more important in politics. And it's because politics become an idol when policies are more important than people. Right? When we talk about politics and they are important and they are significant and they matter, they become an idol when, they are, when, when policies are more important than the people uh, that we're talking about them with. Now, uh, there, if you might have seen recently, there was a report that came out talking about the rise of the religious nuns. And for the first time, I think maybe ever in American history, less than 50% of people are members at a church. Uh, personally, I think part of that is just has to do with the fact of nominal Christianity is, is kind of leaving, which is like Christian in name only or just came up, grew up in it but didn't actually believe. And so I'm like, good riddance. That's good. Like we're either following Jesus or not. Like, like let's not play a game like we are. Um, but in that, what you see happening, part of the political polarization of our culture today is because we all attach meaning and significance to something. And if it's not going to be God, well, politics are a pretty significant thing that have practical implications. And so we rise and fall on our policies and our political people getting into office. Now, again, politics matter. This is not a retreat. And in fact, it is our care for people that can actually cause us to be active politically and to have conversations. So like, for example, let's talk about protests, for example, for, for a second. Every single one of us in this room is pro-protest. We all are. It's just whether or not we like what's being protested. 
Uh, so social justice, racial injustice that happened last year, and you know there was marches in the street because people of color, just like we saw last two weeks, are being killed by police officers, and unfair and mass incarceration, and how the death penalty, I mean, it's just horrific how the death penalty is, is applied to African Americans compared to everyone else in the United States of America, death rates, health, red zoning, school education, the wealth inequality, and so there's stuff being protested, and some people are like, this is great, some people are like, we don't like this because it's not something that we necessarily believe in, but we're all pro-protest. Protest, right? So that might be one side. Another side, unfortunately, we could talk about abortion, right? Well, if you're pro-life, then, then you would say, yeah, I'm good with protesting abortion and trying to enact laws that change that because we want to be pro-life from womb to tomb, though, not just when they're in the womb, but actually when they're born as well. So we're all pro-protest. It's just a matter of if we like what's being protested or not. And so this is, again, not saying we shouldn't do those things. What's saying is that it should be our love for people that drives these things, not just our agenda or our ideology that we want to be passed to make ourselves feel better. Right? And again, Simon and Matthew here and all of the disciples are going to love something and going to love people previously that they would have wanted nothing to do with and would have avoided because Christ, Christ is greater. They've experienced his love. They found a better thing and they want other people to know this as well. And so again, if we continue in 1 John, if you look a few verses down into verse 16, Here's what John continues to say, talking about God and his love and who he is. This is in the middle of verse 16, the second part of 16, it starts like this. It says, God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so that we might have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not completed in love. Just talking about how when Jesus returns, if we are in Christ, we don't experience the wrath and the punishment of God that we deserve because Christ has done it on our behalf. So we have nothing to fear because we have experienced God's love. And then verse 19. Then says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, from Jesus himself. The one who loves God must also love his brother or sister. Now, again, we would say amen, and I agree with that. But we can forget this when politics get involved. Right? We can be so zealous for what we want to see happen that we can forget that there are people on the, other, on the other side of the screen or there are people that are affected by these things. We can forget that this love is the greatest thing when, it, when we start to idolize politics into the greatest thing. And so here's what we need to remember. When we talk about politics and following Jesus and Jesus confronting pol our political idolatry, here's what we need to remember, that politics are a means, not an end. They are a means. They are not an end. Now, they are important. They are significant. They matter. I think you should vote. I think you should do all those things. But they cannot and will not be God. Right? They cannot change a human heart. Uh, they cannot change a, 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 a politician or a party cannot change a human heart. Now, again, we should have good laws because whether or not our hearts are changed, we should desire human flourishing. And so let's put laws in place that you know, push us towards that end. But they cannot do for us what we often think that they can do. Politics become an idol when we view them as an end of the end, end, end uh, and I can't even say it, end, end, end of themselves. Right? They become an idol. They are, not, they are a means, not an end. And if you think they are an end, then you will often get disappointed. 
you'll often get disappointed and treat people accordingly. If you remember this past fall, I shared my saga to buy an Xbox for the first time since I was in high school, and the new one came out, and that joker took me four months to get. Took me four months to get this thing. But as I was waiting, and as I was like trying online, whatever, I kept talking to all these people that had an Xbox that I didn't know. I'm like, oh, we're going to play, play with each other. Like, what's your favorite game? And so I'm like getting really excited to get this stinking thing so I can play with my friends. Well, I have had an Xbox for four months now, and I ain't never playing with anybody, right? They all lied to me, right? A couple of times we played together, but then since then, it's just like, nope, no one wants to play. No one's ever on, right? I thought that if I got this Xbox, I'd play with my friends, and it didn't happen, and I was sad. Now, again, of course, politics is a lot greater than that, but if you think it's an end, then you will be woefully disappointed. Politics are a means and not an end, and here's why it's important for us to know, because when politics are an end, people are the problem. When politics are an end, an end in of themselves, people are a problem. And here's why people are a problem. Here's the problem with that. When people are the problem, they become enemies to defeat instead of a family to love. When people are the problem because we've idolized politics, they become enemies to defeat instead of, especially if they're brothers and sisters in Christ, a family to love and to care for. Listen, when politics matter more than people, then we have a problem because then we can't do what is happening here. In fact, real quick, I just want to read you some verses talking about how we're supposed to love one another, okay? When politics matter more than people, and then when people become a problem and an enemy to defeat, here's what cannot happen. They'll be on the screen. Romans 12, it says this, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters, outdo one another in showing honor. How did you do with that last year? How did you do without, not just like being kind, but outdoing your political opponents and showing honor? How did you do with that? This is the question for us to ask ourselves. First Peter 4, above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Did we, did you or did I uh, harbor constant love for those that we disagreed with politically? Galatians 6, Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Well, I know this. We cannot carry the burdens of someone who's our enemy. I know that can't happen. Colossians 3. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, he's talking about believers here, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you. So you are also to forgive. How do we do with that with the people who we disagreed with politically? Verse 14, above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Ephesians 4, no foul language should come from your mouth. I'll keep reading. Okay, that wasn't good enough. All right. But only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives Grace. So say this with me. So that it gives Grace. to those uh, to those who hear. How did you? How did I do with that this year? Did we give grace? Again, this is not saying you can't disagree. This is not saying that you can't even have maybe uh, compassionate or passionate exchanges. But did we view the person that we're talking to or the people that we are thinking of in our head who represent the other camp as humans created in the image of God, or do we see them as enemies who are just wrong and stupid and need to be put in their place? Finally, John 13, the last one I'll read, although we could spend you know, the rest of the time on this. I give you a new command. This is from Jesus. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Did you and I love our political opponents this past year the way Christ loved us? 
By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Not if your theology is the best ever. Not if your doctrine is 100%. You can articulate why God, you know, you should follow Jesus and why Christianity is true and other religions are wrong or other ideologies of the day kind of fall short. That's not what proves you're a disciple to the world. It's if you love one another. And if this is true, this is the question we have to ask ourselves. Are you more concerned about who someone votes for or if they know Jesus? And I, if you're a follower of Christ, I'm not asking this as like a Jesus juke answer of like, oh, you're a pastor, I'm supposed to ask that. I'm like, literally, are you more concerned about someone, about who someone votes for or if they know Jesus? And here's the thing. It's not enough to say, well, that's a good question, where we actually have to practically live this out, right? We have to act. And here's the thing. If we are more concerned if someone knows Christ, it'll change how we interact with people we disagree with. If we are more concerned about if they know they are loved and cared for by the king of the universe, then some of the things that we might want to be tempted to say, we won't say. The way that we will judge people in our heart, we may not judge them in our heart because we want them to know that God loves them. And we, can, we have found a greater thing. Listen, following Jesus does not mean we're all going to believe politically the same thing. At New City Church, and I've talked to a lot of you over the past year, we have people who love and are pro-Trump. We have people who love and were pro-Biden. We have people who voted third party. We have people who did not vote at all. And every single one of you is welcome here because we have something greater than a political party or a person. Again, this is not to say we shouldn't be engaged, but we have found something that unified us even bigger than that, that we can love each other in our disagreement. In fact, here, I'll read one more passage. Here's what Jesus says. In Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's his longest recorded sermon uh, in the New Testament, and he's talking about how following Jesus is a radical thing, and it's so different than any other thought and ideology. And then he, he talks about anger and loving your enemies. And here's what he says, verse 43. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? Like the people that you hate more than anything else, don't they also love people who are like them? Verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles, and so for them, this are people who did not follow God, do the same? Be perfect or be spiritually mature. Be more like Jesus. Follow him, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, again, we read this and we say, yeah, that sounds good. The question is, are we actually practically willing to do this when the stakes are high and someone's made us upset? But that's the question. It's not just, all oh, that sounds nice, but will I actually be able to live this out? And so to make this, especially when we talk about politics, to make this maybe uh, relevant or maybe how, how, this, how we might be able to read this in our current day, I paraphrase what Jesus is saying here. This is not a translation. I can't read the Greek. But I changed some of the words here to match our current political climate for us to really be able to better say, are we willing to do this? Or what does it look like to do what Jesus is saying to do? So it'll be on the screen. I just want to read to you. It's the same five verses. Just change some words around to kind of reflect our per current political moment of how that might be said today if Jesus were to confront us with our political idolatry. He could say it like this. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your political opponents. But I tell you, love those who believe differently than you and pray for those who don't vote like you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the Republicans and the Democrats and sends rain on the Democrats and Republicans. 
For if you love those who vote like you, what reward will you have? Don't even the lobbyists do the same? And if you greet your political allies, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the left and right wing leaning news outlets do the same? Be loving, therefore, as your heavenly father is loving. This is what he's calling us to. Now, I know one of the objections could be this. Well, I don't hate others. They're just wrong, so I need to correct them. Listen, that is not what it means to love. Telling someone they're wrong and why I need to correct you is not what it means to love. Right? The, what it means to love is that even in our disagreement, I'll tell you that I'll disagree, but I'm going to hang out with you. I'm going to let you know that I care for you. I'm going to let you know, that, you know that, that you're someone that's made in the image of God to say, well, out of love, I'm just going to correct them is not love. It's not love. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? If I do not have love, I'm like a clanging, a, a clanging cymbal, you know, clash, clashing through the day. I mean, you watch social media. This is all it is. It's like us like saying awful, like horrific things online to each other because we're behind a computer screen. Like, that's not love. And again, it's not to say you can't post. It's not to say that you can't engage because, again, politics have a very practical implication on our lives. And so we should engage, but we should do it with love. And here's what I would also argue, that our political idolatry of which all, no matter how mature you are, how long you've been following Jesus, we can all slip into this. Political idolatry, I would argue, is fueled by a lack of trust in God. That's why we do it. Because we think if our person, whether on the national level or the you know, state, federal, whatever, local, doesn't get in charge, then the world's going to end. Then America is going to be over. Then there's no hope for America of this or this or this happening. Listen, this, is, this happens on both sides, every election. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like slinging out. This happens to both sides, every election. But when we do that, when we use words like that, we're saying, well, we don't really trust that God's in control. I need someone that I can get in the office so that I can trust them instead of trusting God. Our political idolatry, when we're, not, when we're not careful, is fueled by a lack of trust in God. And so here's what this means for us, right? The point of all we're trying to say here is this, that politics are greater than people. Politics are greater than people. And the challenge is not just to say, well, that sounds good. The challenge is to, to live out the fact that people are greater than politics. <laughs> That's the challenge, right? That's the challenge. It's to actually believe that people are greater than politics. Not politics are greater than people. <clears throat> right? But that's what we do. Like we read this and we say, that's great. And then we go live in the real world and we act like politics are greater. Are we actually willing to live the truth and the reality that people are greater than politics? Listen to me. Jesus would not undo political governments and structures. He wouldn't undo them. But he would undo our political idolatry. Some of Jesus' harshest words were for fellow Jews, fellow religious leaders who followed God and kind of did it wrongly and did it to the detriment of others. And so instead of us thinking, well, here's how the world needs to change and here's how everyone else needs to change. If you are a follower of Jesus, the question is, how can I better represent his love and grace in my community? Jesus would not undo these things, but he would certainly challenge how we, how we uh, elevate them at times. Now, again, this is not a call for pacifism. This is not a call for us to step back. We should fight for justice out of love. If you were here last week, I don't care what word you use, social justice, biblical justice, caring for the poor and the oppressed or marginalized. What we saw is that, un unfortunately, sometimes we can view earth as this bad thing that, that God's just going to get rid of. But instead, we forget that Jesus literally prayed that God's kingdom come on earth and that Jesus returns. He's not going to destroy the universe. He's just going to recreate it. And so we can't be like, well, as long as you know Jesus, you're suffering. It's unfortunate but you get to go to heaven when you die. That's not what following Jesus is about. He cares about our soul and about our body. In fact, when Jesus was on the earth, he taught, he forgave sins, and he healed people. 
I had one, one person, one pastor said, put it this way, that one third of Jesus' ministry was health care. He cares about your body. He cares about your suffering. He cares about your soul. Listen, Jesus called, as we kind of wrap this up here, Jesus called two radically different people on completely different ends of the political spectrum, one of which Simon probably would have no problem killing Matthew the tax collector before they started following Jesus. And they found something greater, and it wasn't just a moment, it wasn't just a few months, it was the rest of their life. They would learn what it looked like to love people so that as many people as possible can experience the grace and mercy and love of God. Again, politics matter. Voting matters. You should have your convictions, and that is no, there's nothing wrong with that. You can be vocal with your convictions. There is nothing wrong with that. The problem is when we idolize it, when we make people our enemy instead of loving them the way Christ has loved us.